Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning for listeners, this episode contains discussion of child sexual abuse. Please listen with caution and care. In the summer of 2001, Lorinda Swain was a 40-year-old single mother of two, living in Union City, Michigan. She had just completed a three-month jail term for a drug charge and was back home on parole. Lorinda was looking forward to seeing her boys, Ronnie and Cody, who had been living with their father while she was in jail. She'd been trying to reach her ex-husband to arrange it, but he hadn't returned any of her calls. Lorinda was relaxing in the bathtub at her parents' farmhouse when there was a knock at the door. And so my dad tells that the police are there. I figured the cops must be there, and they're, like, trying to say I threatened them about having visitation. But it was much more serious than that. When I tell people that I was sentenced 25 to 50 years, they automatically assume that I was accused of murder. And I always tell them, no, (laughs) I was accused of worse than that. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Lorinda Swain. Lorinda Swain was born in 1960 in Hamilton, Ohio. The family later moved to Michigan. She was the middle child of six. I've always heard that that's a bad place to be, you know, but to be honest, my siblings, if you had to ask every one of them who they're the closest to, it would probably be me. So (laughs) I like to be in the middle child. I had very loving parents, George and Faye. They've been married 68 years. My dad was a tool and die maker. My mother was like a homemaker until we were all in school, and then she got a job so that we could buy a farm. Lorinda admits that as a child, she had some unusual hobbies. I was the cleaner out of the family. 
I like to cook and clean. And when I was a kid, I would like, you know, stay up all night and clean the silverware drawers. But she also enjoyed more typical kid things. I had a, a, a good childhood. I liked sports. We camped and fished. My mom always took us to South Haven and we'd get cherries and ice cream on the way. I, a lot of my life felt very lucky to be me. When she was a teenager, the family moved to a farm in Burlington, about 40 miles away. Before long, Lorinda fell for someone, and they started a serious relationship. She was 17, he was 27. They moved in together a year later. Living together back then was like a big deal. And my parents were like, you know, we'll, we'll disown you. And the next week they were like at my house and loved my husband. And I lived there like maybe two years before we got married. And then I was married to him for seven years. But that marriage didn't work out. And at 28, Lorinda found herself in transition, about to be divorced, living in Union City, Michigan, and working at a local Italian restaurant. And that is where she met Ronald Swain. I slipped on a piece of ice cleaning up the salad bar, Italian pasta bar. And Ron, you know, came to rescue me. And <laughs> I met him. And to be honest, I, you know, like I said, I was getting a divorce from my first marriage. And I ended up having to worry if my divorce was going to be final before we got married. Ron was 16 years older than Lorinda. And as she describes him, he was handsome enough to be a movie star. He already had a daughter, and Lorinda says he was a good dad. She looked forward to starting a family with him. I used to love kids more than anybody in the entire world. I'm talking nieces and nephews prior to having my own children. We tried twice to have a test tube baby, and it didn't work. So we ended up getting into foster care and adopting. They adopted two boys, Ronnie and Cody Joe, who were 13 months apart. They brought me a lot of joy. They did. I, I, I loved them, and I was so happy being a mom. I was so, I, I spoiled them. They brought me so much joy. Oh, <laughs> she was the ultimate mother. This is George Johnson, Lorinda's father. She loved them. Every parent loves their child, but she couldn't have children. And uh, so whenever she got to adopt these two little boys, it was like a gift from God, you know, and she worshipped them boys. But unfortunately, Ron didn't feel the same about the children, Lorinda says. They didn't make him happy and, you know, so, it, you know, the marriage didn't work out. And I, I, I think they were like five and six, maybe four and five when we got divorced. I had the custody and he hardly visited <laughs> You know, he got to claim them for taxes as long as he was current on support. And he, he didn't even come and visit them or, you know. It was just her and the two boys. That's their family now. She really, she really pleased that she was the mother and the father. And they wasn't going to be shortchanged in any way. But still, being a single parent wasn't easy. Lorinda says before long, things in her life started to go downhill. She found a new boyfriend who turned out to be violent, and he introduced her to hard drugs. And that's what I'm guilty of, is that I made a bad choice. I did use crack. I did. I was depressed and, 
You know, maybe that's just an excuse, whatever. I never even knew what it was and sure didn't plan it. And it's one of my deepest regrets, but it, it's, you know, I can't change it. After she got out of that relationship, Lorinda got back on her feet. Her living situation got more stable and she began to feel like she and the boys were doing okay. I was living with a boyfriend that I did tree work for in my parents, one of their rental properties. They had more than one and I would move there and I would like fix it up, landscape, clean the yard, clean the house, decorate. And then they would get me to move to another. We'll get Lorinda to move there because she'll fix it up. But then Lorinda made another bad choice. She stole one of her parents' credit cards and used it to score drugs. She got it, yeah, maxed it out, maxed it out overnight. <laughs> My parents didn't prosecute, but I got probation. I had no criminal history prior to this. Lorinda wasn't incarcerated, but she was on parole, and she couldn't kick old habits. I did go back out and use, and my dad loved me and was so worried about me that he turned me in. He wanted me to go to jail because he was afraid if I didn't that I was going to get killed, you know, doing drugs. Well, that was really the, we got to do something. She needs help. And you steal from your parents, that's about as low as you can get. You know, and we worked with her all along, but at that point, somebody else had to help her. I wasn't able to do it. Lorinda was sent to prison on the drug violation for 90 days. And while she was there, Ronnie and Cody were in the custody of their dad and his new wife, Lynn. When Lorinda was released in August of 2001, she was still on probation and had to wear an ankle monitor. She wasted no time trying to contact Ron to see her children. And my husband wouldn't answer the phone or whatever. And I just told that, hey, if you don't get a hold of me by Friday, you'll be in contempt of court. A couple of days later, Lorinda was at her parents' farm. I'm actually in the bathtub with my leg up on the side of the tub with a plastic bag around it because back then you couldn't get the tethers wet. And so my dad tells that the police are there. I figured the cops must be there, and they're, like, trying to say I threatened them about having visitation. But it wasn't about the visitation at all. The police were there to take Lorinda in. She had been accused of committing an unimaginable crime. And so can you walk us through what happened in this case? Not necessarily the prosecution theory, but what happened? Ronnie, who was the older son, who by this point was about 14 years old, was caught by his stepmother uh, committing sexual misconduct with a relative. This is Dave Moran. He's the co-director and co-founder of the Michigan Innocence Clinic at the University of Michigan Law School. And the stepmother apparently uh, suggested to Ronnie that uh, he must have learned that from someone else. And Ronnie then implicated Lorinda and, and claimed that Lorinda had performed oral sex on him. According to the allegations, this had all happened years before, when Ronnie was about seven. Many, many times, in fact, every day before catching the school bus, according to Ronnie, Lorinda pulled down his pants and performed oral sex on him. Ronnie was the most honest kid. So when they first accused me of it, down at the jailhouse after they've picked me up at my parents' farm, 
I told the guy, I don't believe Ronnie said that. He said, I witnessed Ronnie say it. I said, well, then he's a goddamn liar because I said, I never dreamed of doing that. Oh, I know she didn't do it. I know she didn't do it. I, the way she loved them, no way, no way in hell would she harm them boys. Like something like that. But based on Ronnie's allegation alone, Lorinda was arrested and charged with sexually molesting her oldest son. The trial was scheduled for the following August. And then, soon after his mother was arrested, Ronnie confessed that the story was a lie. It would be the first of many times that he tried to recant. The first time he recanted, my dad and my sister and my nephew went with a tape recorder thing and asked if they, you know, he would talk to him, and he agreed to. You know, I asked him, what on earth did you, you know, what, what's the deal? And he told me it, it wasn't true. Then they called the other grandma, his birth grandma, and he admitted to her that I didn't do it, and he admitted to my parents that I didn't do it. And my dad had it on tape. But those tapes were never introduced at trial by Lorinda's defense. My lawyer just counted on Ronnie telling the truth. And that was when I realized at the trial, I'm going to be found guilty. You're listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lorinda's trial began in August of 2002 in Calhoun County, Michigan. The primary witnesses for the prosecution were Ronnie, who was now 15, and his younger brother, Cody, who was 14. Cody didn't implicate her directly in any kind of sexual misconduct, but just kind of backed up that she supposedly had had behaved inappropriately. Then you you had the stepmother testifying about what uh, Ronnie had told her, uh, and that was pretty much it. The prosecution didn't really have any other substantial witnesses. The story that the jury heard from Ronnie and Cody at trial went like this. The allegations were quite specific, namely that for this period of several years, uh, Lorinda would get the boys up and get them ready for school, and then she would send the younger son, Cody, out to wait for the school bus, and then she would molest Ronnie, and then Cody would come running down the driveway to alert everybody that the school bus was coming, and then Lorinda would pull up Ronnie's pants and send him out there to join Cody and catch the bus. No kid ever waited out there alone. They usually were watching cartoons, eating fruit roll-ups. And when I see the bus coming, I'd have to hurry and get them to go run out to the end of the driveway. You know what I'm saying? No one kid ever sat out there by himself. And so Lorinda, at her trial, she, she didn't have a very good lawyer, but she tried to assert the defenses herself. And so at one point, while she was testifying, she blurted out, the story's not true, asked the neighbor boy and the school bus driver. My lawyer should have stopped the trial right then. I said, look, we need to get the bus driver and the little neighbor boy. See who's telling the truth here. But he didn't do that. Instead, Lorinda's attorney was counting on Ronnie to tell the truth on the stand. But that didn't happen either. Ronnie recanted before trial. And, and in fact, he recanted at trial. And then he had a private conversation with the prosecutor. And then he came back in and unrecanted. My lawyer said to Ronnie three times, don't you want to tell the truth here today? The third time, Ronnie started crying. The judge stopped the trial, ordered you know everybody out of the courtroom. I knew he was crying because he knew I never dreamed of doing anything like that. But I realized to the 12 strangers, they think he's crying because they think I really did do this. On August 20th, 2002, the jury found Lorinda guilty on all four counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. She was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. 
when I was first found guilty of a crime I never dreamed of doing, I was sure, I was so naive to think that when they realize that I didn't do it, they'll tear the doors down, you know. Eventually, I knew they knew they had made a mistake, but they'd sooner appeal or fight it and not care if my family and my life is wrecked. To this day, I can't believe it was real. The whole while I was in there, I knew it was real, but I couldn't believe it was real at the same time. You know, I've done some wrong in my day. I really have. But I sure didn't do this. Like I said, a lot of my life, I felt really lucky to be me. But when I was in a jail cell on my 41st birthday, accused of what I was accused of, I felt like the most unlucky person in the entire world for a very long time. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. 
I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, when I tell people that I was sentenced 25 to 50 years, they automatically assume that I was accused of murder. And I always tell them, no, (laughs) I was accused of worse than that. You know, I would have rather been accused of killing my mom and dad than to be accused of molesting your adopted son, you know? Lorinda knew that because of the nature of the crime she was charged with, she was going to have a tough time of it in prison. People were cruel to to some people. And a lot of times it was like sexual assault people. You know, I had a couple couple different confrontations where one girl did say to me, you sucked your kid's dick the size of my pinky and put her pinky up and said that in my face. The thought was in my head to pick the pan up and beat her frickin' brains out. But God also put the thought in my head, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never harm you unless you hurt that girl. I'll tell you what, I I drink, I smoke pot, I swear. I certainly am not a saint, but I love God. I know he's real. I'm sorry I'm a sinner. I talk to him all the time. And when I was in prison, I was talking to him, and I was even swearing at him, telling him the Bible's a damn lie. It says you don't put more on us than we can bear, and this is way more than I can bear. The Innocence Clinic at the University of Michigan opened its doors in January of 2009. Dave remembers that Lorinda's was one of the first cases they took on. We took it within the first few months of the clinic being open because it came to us recommended by Bill Proctor, who is an investigative journalist and, and then later private investigator that we knew and trusted. And, and we heard from Brad Edwards, another investigative journalist who'd done a story on Lorinda's case. And so after meeting Lorinda in prison, we very qu- quickly decided to take on the case well, so how did you disprove it? Because that seems like what it what it was. It was 96 to 94. He said his mom was molesting him. And now, you know, we're years later. So right. how did you? Well, because we talked to Ronnie pretty early on and Cody both, and they were both firm that this did not happen, that that Ronnie and Cody had been manipulated by the stepmother into making these charges against Lorinda. And so that made us think that this was a wrongful conviction, but we knew that Ronnie and Cody alone couldn't do it because they had already recanted. So that wasn't going to be new evidence. We had to find new evidence. And and the most obvious place to look was what Lorinda had shouted out at trial, the neighbor kid and the school bus driver. The jury never heard from them. What about that neighbor boy? What about that school bus driver? And we found them. And the neighbor boy agreed that the the Swain brothers came out every morning together and waited with him for the school bus. And then we actually found the school bus driver and she had an amazing memory of 
the routes that she drove and who she picked up at each point. At a post-conviction hearing before Judge Conrad Sins, both the neighbor and the bus driver were called as witnesses. The bus driver testified that she saw the Swain brothers waiting at the stop together every day along with the neighbor boy. She never saw Cody running to get his brother from the house. The prosecutor got up, you know, just dripping with sarcasm, like, oh, yeah, sure, after all these years, you know, by this point, we're, we're close to 20 years or 15, 20 years. And so, he, so the prosecutor just fell right into the trap and he said, all right, so, you know, who did you pick up the stop before the Swains? And she named like two or three kids. And all right, what about the, what about the stop before that? And she named two or three more kids. Well, what about the stop after the Swain kids? And she named the kids she picked up there. And you could just tell the judge was utterly convinced by this veteran school bus driver with the photographic memory. And in their investigation, Dave's team had uncovered another witness, Dennis Book, who was Lorinda's live-in boyfriend at the time of the alleged abuse. And he provided utterly crucial testimony because he was there when the boys would catch the bus because he would leave after that to go to work. And so he could affirm that this absolutely didn't happen. And what made him such a great witness was that he absolutely hated Lorinda. They had a, they had a terrible breakup. But even more crucially, what he revealed is that he had been contacted by Detective Pickett, who was the, the officer in charge of the case against Lorinda. And he had told Detective Pickett in no uncertain terms, you know, I detest that woman, but this absolutely didn't happen. And if it had happened, I would have turned her in myself. Knowing how much Dennis Book hated Lorinda, her defense attorney never called him at trial. He was afraid that Dennis's testimony would hurt Lorinda's case. And Officer Pickett never revealed to the defense what Dennis Book had told him, that Lorinda didn't do it. And so that became a Brady violation. Because had the defense lawyer known what Dennis Book had told Detective Pickett, then that would have changed the calculus entirely. What made him want to testify for you guys? He, he didn't especially. It took several visits with him to persuade him to testify. And then, of course, we, we did subpoena him. So he actually was under a legal obligation to show up. So like, so like imagine the person that you've had the worst breakup in your life with coming in and saying, basically, you're a terrible person, but but you didn't do this. That is a credible witness. In August of 2009, as a result of the new evidence, Judge Sint granted Lorinda a new trial, and she was released on bond. When I was in prison, I watched two sets of Olympics. And I used to think the closest thing I'd ever feel to what they must feel when they touch that pool first or cross that finish line would be if my name was cleared and I got justice. Well, it felt good leaving there, August 5th, 09. And I thought I'm going to know what it feels like to be the Olympic athlete in six months to a year, for sure. That's what it looked like. But Lorinda's journey wasn't over when she was released on bond. And then the case, though, lingered for another seven years from that point for us trying to you know, finalize the victory. And it kept going up and down the appellate chain, and we would lose rounds, and then we'd win a round. And the prosecution, when we'd lose a round, would move to send her back to prison. So we have to go back to the trial judge and try and keep her out of prison. I had no idea it was going to be seven more years that I'd have to, you know, 
worried that I'm going to have to either go back to prison or kill myself because I wasn't going back to prison and I wasn't going to take off and make my parents lose their $30,000 they'd put up for bond. And there were some scary moments because Lorinda was very dead set about not going back to prison. And, and so we were very concerned about her health and safety. Did she express to you her maybe suicidal ideations that if she was going to go back, that was, that was it? Yes. And, you know, we would try and talk her out of it, but it was a, a lot of pressure on it. And there was one hearing in particular where we had just lost a round and then the prosecution moved to cancel her bond and tether and send her back to prison. And we went to court and there was a guy there from the Department of Corrections waiting. And he was, he, he was holding his, you know, leg irons and waist chain and handcuffs mm. and, you know, playing with them, clinking, clinking them like the Grim Reaper. We've heard that Ronnie recanted his allegation many times, and he continued to maintain that Lorinda hadn't done this. But that still leaves the question, why did Ronnie make up this story in the first place? It all started when Lorinda was in prison for the drug violation, and Ronnie and Cody were living with their father and stepmother. As it came out later, 14-year-old Ronnie had been caught in an act of sexual misconduct with a young relative, a three-year-old girl who was also living in the house. He knew he had done wrong. The little girl told on him. Ronnie first denied it, then he admitted he did it and said he was playing a game called Babies. So they took him to the therapist and had him tell the therapist I had done this, you know, lots of times, way years ago. <laughs> and that's why he did it. Years later, Ronnie admitted that actually he he learned about oral sex from watching some of the movies and magazines in his father's porn stash. And so how did it come about where they were like, oh, we're going to blame Lorinda? Do you know how that happens? Yes, yes, because the stepmother told Ronnie, she said, Ronnie, if this happened to you, you won't go to jail. Your mom will get a little bit of time in jail and they'll help her with her using her drugs. She'll get six months in jail. <laughs> but I got 25 to 50 years in jail. Allegations of child sexual abuse are taken very seriously by the courts. But Ronnie had recanted his story multiple times to authorities. So why would that not be enough to overturn the conviction? As Dave explains, when it comes to these kinds of cases, it's not always that simple. Even a recantation from the complainant is likely not to be enough because there are so many reasons that the courts will point to or the prosecutors will point to as to why somebody might recant a child sexual abuse allegation that's true. For example, because they're under pressure from family members or because they feel guilty about sending somebody to prison or they think that somebody has been punished enough and it's time to, time to bring them home. And so it's just never enough to have the complainant in a child sex abuse case recant. And in fact, it wasn't enough in this case. Lorinda had gotten nowhere, even though Ronnie had vociferously recanted many times. You have to be able to corroborate the recantation. You have to be able to show why the, the claim objectively couldn't be true. And so we were very lucky in this case that we were able to do that. And that was through the bus driver and the neighbor boy. And the ex-boyfriend, Dennis Book. Over the next seven years, Lorinda was granted a retrial multiple times. 
but Calhoun County Prosecutor Susan Mladenov objected each time. Finally, in 2016, the Michigan Innocence Clinic persuaded the state Supreme Court to order a new trial for Lorinda. And then, on May 19, 2016, the prosecution dropped the charges. She was finally free. I did end up getting to feel what that athlete felt like when they touched that pool. When Dave called me and told me, the, the Supreme Court decision is back and you're, you're exonerated. That was great. I mean, that was, that was euphoric. Uh, a, a lot of pressure on her, a lot of pressure on us all those years. But to actually be able to complete the exoneration, have her cut off that tether that she'd been wearing for seven years and be free, it was, it, it was one of the great moments at the clinic. Lorinda is no longer in touch with Ronnie and Cody. And, you know, I, I do forgive them. They didn't ask me to adopt them. I did use drugs. You know, I forgive them, but I, can't, I just can't forget what they wrecked mine and my parents' life. In July of 2017, Lorinda filed a lawsuit against Calhoun County seeking damages for her wrongful conviction. The suit was settled in 2018, which allowed Lorinda to put her life back together and finally make a new start. I work hard, I rest hard, and I play hard. I have a dog that I've had for almost 14 years. We're little old ladies together. I love to work on my home and my yard. I have a garden. I have the best neighbors. <laughs> I have a great boyfriend. I, you know, I dance. I, I shop. I, I cook. I, I clean. I I water ski, I play tennis, and I'm 63. But in my heart, I'm 10. In my heart, I am 10. And I'm so grateful to Almighty God for giving me the strength to get through it, giving me loving parents and, you know, U of M and my prison boss and just different people that, that, that helped to make a difference. So in the end, God showed me that I have more strength than I ever knew. And I did persevere. I did muddle through it. And I met incredible people because of it. If you'd like to help support the important work the Michigan Innocence Clinic is doing, please check out their link in our episode description. And thank you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in the episode description to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom, Jeff Kempler, and Kevin Wordis, as well as senior producer Annie Chelsea, producer Kathleen Fink, story editor Hannah Beal, and researcher Shelby Sorrells. Mixing and sound design are by Jackie Pauly, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on all platforms at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 